Philippians chapter two. I'll read verses one through 18. We'll pray and then we'll jump in. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, your word is able by your spirit to pierce our very hearts, to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. Holy Spirit, you use your word to bring life and to bring out in us Christ's likeness. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage today to read and understand and believe your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage today by your spirit to not just be willing to learn humility, but to receive power to walk in it. God, you called light out of darkness with your word. You bring life to what is lifeless with your word. And I pray that by your word, you would accomplish your will in us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, nothing will destroy a church 
or a community faster than division. And nothing will foster division as effectively and efficiently as pride. Really quickly, if your desire is to destroy a church, if you, if you want to see reality carpentry, if you want to see the, the, the broader community of Christ in Carpinteria, come to rubble. I will make it very simple for you. Look at one another and other churches as competition and see the activity of the church as existing for your own gain and your own glory. If you see one another as competition and see the limited resources of the church as competition with one another to gain your own status, to gain your own position, to gain your own comfort, to gain your own standing and see others as competition, it's only a matter of time before it all comes crumbling down. This is actually what is happening behind the scenes in the church in Philippi. And so Paul makes this plea for humility in the church. And his plea for humility is threefold. He begins, notice in the text, he begins with what he knows to be true about the church. He begins with what he knows to be true about what the church is and who the church is. And so humility is not something that is outside of us as believers. Okay, if you've trusted in the gospel, humility is not something that you need to reach for. Okay, humility is something that we are already equipped for. And so Paul appeals to four conditions that can be assumed of any believing community. First, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ. So think about your life in Christ, those of you who believe. Is there any encouragement there? Is there any encouragement in knowing that you've been called out of death and into life? Is there any encouragement in knowing that you're not alone in this world, but the God of the universe by his spirit is with you? Is there any encouragement in that? Of course there is. He says, if there's any comfort from love, I'll ask the same question. Knowing the love of Christ the self-sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross for you to ransom you from sin and slavery and death and to deliver you from hell. Any comfort there? Absolutely. He says any participation in, literally any fellowship with the Spirit. If you've trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And, and lives within you. And we commune with God by the Spirit. The very fact of trusting in Jesus and being united to him by the Holy Spirit means that we have fellowship with the Spirit. Paul says, any affection and sympathy. Do you know the love and affection of Christ, your King, and the sympathy that he has with us in our desperate state to serve and sacrifice and save us. These are things that Paul knows are true about the believing community. He builds his argument on what already is. Church, this is who you are if you have, if you have trusted in Christ. And so he says, then be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then this is the logical response. Be unified. Have the same mind. Have a shared love. Be in full accord with one another. The logical implication of seeing what Christ has done for us is to change our perception of one another and to participate together in this faith by the Spirit. This is the the unity that we are to have. And this unity comes by what Paul will call the mind of Christ. He says, have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It is the mind of Christ, but it belongs to the people of Christ. This one mind, this shared belief. The people in Philippi, Paul says, you already have it but they need to begin to operate in it. And so he turns to call them out of pride. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This this selfish ambition or what is literally translated conceit is vain glory. Do nothing for your own gain. Do absolutely nothing for your own advancement. Do nothing for, for the sake of your own privilege, for the sake of your own rights, for the sake of your own good. Do nothing to advance yourself in rivalry or conceit. Do nothing for your own glory. Now, this was an issue in Philippi. See, Philippi was a Roman colony. Okay, and as a Roman colony, there would have been a massive uh, diversity and disparity in socioeconomic status among the people. So just think about the first three converts in the church in Philippi. We talked about this a few weeks ago in Acts chapter 16. An aristocratic woman, a Roman soldier, and a former demoniac slave girl. Three radically different classes of people in the Roman Empire. And one of the things about the Roman Empire and the class system that existed there is you didn't associate with anyone outside of your class. A a Roman citizen would not associate with a slave girl. And here they are, members of the body of Christ, worshiping Jesus in Lydia's house, an aristocratic woman. Jewish woman who led a Gentile Roman soldier and a former demoniac into her home. Look at the diversity of the body of Christ. Paul tells this community who has been raised to think of themselves as different from one another. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing from pride. Do nothing to lord your title or your status or your wealth over another person. This cannot exist among you. So he says, this is who you are in Christ. And so so unity is the logical implication. And so since you are unified, you are one body, you can have nothing to do with vainglory. Regardless of of, of who you are in the community, this is not fit for Jesus' 
church. And then he presents them with the ideal behavior moving forward. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Rivalry or competition has no place in the household of God. Pride and arrogance in the church is an offense to the gospel. Instead, humility should reign among us as we count one another as being more significant than ourselves. See, our culture views humility as a virtue to be pursued. Most of us, if asked to give a list of virtues, virtues are are what it means to pursue moral excellence. What does it mean to be a morally excellent person in this world? We would be hard pressed to find many people who would deny that humility should be toward the top of our list. We see humility as a, as, a, as a virtue to be pursued. You can go outside and see people wearing shirts that say, be humble. But that wasn't the case in the ancient world. The ancient Greeks and Romans, they did not believe humility was a good thing. They did not believe that humility was something that we should pursue. They saw it as a weakness to be avoided at all costs. See, in the ancient world, the greatest value was honor. And honor for yourself, honor for your family, honor for your tribe. That was the greatest value. And you should pursue honor for yourself and for those close to you by any means necessary, including taking it from other people at their expense. It was like, you know, if you remember like the the rap battles, in like the late 90s and early 2000s, just like people dissing one another for their own like fame and glory and fortune, talking about how much they have, how poor you are, all of this stuff. That, that was like celebrated in the ancient world, boasting in yourself and in your accomplishments. Uh, there are, have been inscriptions recovered um, from from Philippi, actually, uh, in the ancient Roman culture, these inscriptions, like a paragraph long of uh, titles and accomplishments. So if you uh, funded a building project, you would have commissioned a plaque on that building project that would talk about how great you are. And they've uncovered some of these inscriptions. And I wish I would have remembered to this earlier um, to, uh, to, to put a picture of them up there. Not that you guys could read it in the back or anything, but um, there's these lists of titles from everything, like who their dad was, who their grandparents were, like that one thing they did that one time when they were in the military. It'd be like you adding your participation trophies in Little League to your LinkedIn profile. It's, it's just like absurd uh, celebration of, of self. They were obsessed with these titles. Uh, in fact, if you look back at the beginning of the book of Philippians, um, Paul forecasts this a little bit. In, in his letter, there is no other book in the New Testament that Paul writes where he introduces himself as a servant. Literally, the, the word is doulos, it's slave. There's no other book that Paul writes where he introduces himself as a slave without also couching that in the context of his apostolic authority. There's one other book where he says, Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. But in the book of Philippians, he doesn't. 
He just says, slave of Christ Jesus. There's also no other book that Paul writes where he refers to the honorific titles of the people he's writing to. Saints, overseers, deacons. You can flip back to the first two verses in the book of Philippi and see that Paul calls himself a slave. That's the title he uses for himself. And then he references these honorific titles of the leaders in the church. You see what Paul's doing? He's flipping the whole hierarchy of the church upside down. As an apostle, he has the authority. He has the privilege to come in and tell the Philippians to, to, to just obey. And yet he says, I'm presenting myself to you as a slave and flipping the whole hierarchy of the church upside down. And so when Paul exhorts the church in Philippi to live together in humility, he's not telling them something they already know. He's not telling them something that they would naturally desire. They would not have received this well. What do you mean? Be humble, be weak, cower before my my fellow man. What do you mean, Paul? We also, as much as we would acknowledge that humility is a virtue to be pursued. We love it in others and we resist it in ourselves. We love, we, we, we want to see humility in other people. Oh, that person's so arrogant. So if they only knew what I know, they would be more humble. We love to see it in other people, but we resist it in ourselves. Now, many of you know, Uh, that the two most dangerous prayers you can ever pray is for patience and humility. Because we know that God doesn't just miraculously flip a switch and make us patient, humble people. No, he gives us situations where we will have to learn patience and learn humility, which means seasons of being annoyed and potentially humiliated. We resist asking for what we know is good because we believe the path will be detrimental. But what we learn in this passage is that humility is not an option. It is the obvious response for anyone who truly grasps what Christ has done for them. One of the reasons we resist humility, I believe, is because we don't understand it. We don't, we don't really know how to talk about it. We don't know what humility really is. Sometimes we can, we know it if we see it, but it's, it's difficult to understand what to pursue. Many people believe that, that uh, humility is, is being a doormat, right? Humility is not being a doormat. Humility is not letting people walk on you. Humility is not letting others take advantage of you. Now, will others take advantage of you? Oh, most definitely. But that's not what it means. It does not mean that you can't stand up for yourself. It does not mean that you can't stand up for what is right or stand up for other people. Humility doesn't mean self-deprecation. Okay, it doesn't mean that you walk around just so aware of your flaws and failures, so aware of how weak and insignificant and worthless you are. Humility is not self-deprecation. Okay, insecurity is as much a result of pride as arrogance is. We don't think of it that way, but an arrogant person is consumed with their self-glory, their self-worth. 
while the insecure person is consumed with their self-worthlessness. Both of them are consumed with themselves. And so humility is not being a doormat, letting people walk on you. Humility is not self-deprecation, having a belittling opinion of ourselves. Humility doesn't mean that we can't have confidence in who we are in Christ, can't have confidence in our thoughts, our ideas, or our abilities. For many of us, the best definition of of humility has been attributed to C.S. Lewis, who said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. It's not self-loathing. It's self-forgetfulness. And see, humility, according to Paul, is specifically a matter of how you see your own importance. Humility is a matter of how you see your own importance. Paul says that in humility, we are to consider others more significant than ourselves. Looking out not only for our own interests, but also the interests of others. Now, the word interest here in some of your translations uh, may be, may, it may say looking out not only for your own needs, but also the needs of others. Um, but it's, it's really kind of a difficult, uh, it's kind of a, a, a difficult thing. There's, there's actually no word there in the original language that gets translated interests or needs. It's, it's added to make sense of the context to our culture, but literally what it says is do not see only to yourself, but also to others. You see why we kind of need to like flesh that out a little bit. He says, in humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. See to not only yourself, but also to others. And so living in humility doesn't just mean being aware of somebody's needs, somebody's deficiencies, uh, somebody's interests. It doesn't, it's not just being aware of, of what they lack and trying to fill that up in them. It's not just coming to the aid of their deficiencies, but it is also about celebrating their significance. So think about that. Look not only to yourself, but also to others. Look not only always at yourself, but also to others. Be consumed not only by your needs and your gifts, but also to the needs and gifts of others. It's not reducing someone to their interests. It's looking to their whole person, looking to their whole life, looking at them completely. Look not only at yourself and your loves and your hates and your fears and your joys and your desires and your tasks and your responsibilities and all of the things that pertain to you, but look also to them. Look also to one another. See, both of these are important because it's really easy to allow meeting somebody's needs to inflate you. It's like, oh, look at me. So good caring for that person, feeding that person. I gave that guy outside Albertson some money. Look at me. I've done my good deed for the day, for the week, whatever it is. It is much more difficult to celebrate the gifts and successes of others, especially if they're gifts and successes you desire. That requires true humility. Can be a very important and encouraging thing to come alongside someone and help them in their need. But that doesn't mean you're humble. 
celebrating the person who got the promotion that you wanted. Celebrating the raise that somebody was given that you wanted. Celebrating the championship of another person that, that you wanted in your, whatever it is, celebrating somebody else receiving a thing that you desire. That is hard. That requires humility. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, this does not mean that you are not significant. Humility is not self-deprecation. It doesn't mean that you're not important. It doesn't mean that your gifts are not valuable or that your presence is not celebrated. See, these are the fears that creep up in us, in our minds, when we think about living a faithful, biblically humble life. One of the reasons that we resist humility is because we misunderstand it. I think one of the primary reasons we resist humility is because we're afraid of it. We resist humility because of fear, because when we consider what it would look like to truly regard others as more significant than ourselves, the fear that crops up into our mind is, well, then who will look out for me? Who will be mindful of me? Who will be mindful of my interests? What if I do? What if I pour myself out in humility, in self-sacrificial service of the good of other people, and then there's nothing left over for me? See, we are okay with the idea of humility. We are okay with one day operating in humility. But oftentimes we're waiting for somebody else to take the first step. See, until somebody else takes the first step, the world is not safe for you to stop looking out for your own interests only. We see this in siblings all the time in in families, in this like sibling rivalry, right? Siblings, they love each other for the most part, they do. But sometimes they can be punks. And sometimes they can be looking out for their own interests and not the interests of their siblings. Sometimes they can crack jokes at the expense of their siblings. And if left unchecked, it creates an environment that that doesn't mean they don't love each other, but it's an environment where being honest and sincere about their love and affection for one another doesn't feel safe. Because what if I express how I truly feel about my brother or my sister and it's not reciprocated? Or what if, I, what if I, I, I serve them and I'm so focused on serving them, but they don't do the same for me? What if, I'm, what if I'm left without somebody to care for me? The world is an unsafe place for humility because we don't know if it will be reciprocated. We are waiting for somebody else to take the first step. And oftentimes in siblings, when one of them does, it creates safety to then speak or act in love and affirmation of the other person. The same is true for the church. Oftentimes we walk around going like, nobody's encouraging me or nobody's, you know, whatever it is. And at the moment you actually take the initiative to encourage others, it creates safety in the church for people to encourage one another. And so many of us are afraid to just take the first step. I remember learning to drive uh, when I was 16. This is why 16-year-olds should not be given driver's license. Uh, I remember being stopped at a, at, a, at a red light, several cars back from the red light, and the light turned green, 
And I was just like, come on, go. You know, like it would just be so much easier if the light turned green and we all put our foot on the gas at the same time. This is, this is why I shouldn't have been driving. This is the thoughts that went, went in my head. But we know why it's not safe. You have to wait for someone to go first. You have to wait for the first person in the line to move to create space and safety for then you to go. This is how we operate with humility. We know it's something we should do. We know it's a way that we should live. We know that we should build up others and serve others and sacrifice for others in love. We know that, but we're waiting for someone to take the first step. Well, church, I got some good news for you because Jesus has taken the first step. We don't need to wait for anyone to make it safe for humility because the God of the universe has taken the first step. Jesus is all the proof that you need to know that you will be cared for because he has given you a significance that you could never achieve for yourself at great cost to himself. The reason that you can be confident in pouring out your life in humble service of one another, the reason you can be confident not to war with each other over value and honor and and privilege in the church or in the world is because Jesus himself laid down his privilege and his rights to prove to you that he would be mindful of your significance, that he would be mindful of your importance, that he would take upon himself your value, your honor, your good, your well-being, and create safety for all of us not to take the first step, but to just follow suit. Jesus has stepped into this for us. Listen to how Paul addresses each issue we have with humility in the work of Christ. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Yeah, you think you're important? The form of God, equal with God, Jesus did not regard his his divine identity, his oneness with the Father. He did not regard the fact that he was truly God as something to be grasped, which means something to be held onto, clung to, something to be uh, used to his own advantage. See, when it says that he emptied himself, By taking the form of a servant, there's that word again, slave, doulos, taking the form of a slave and being found in human form, he humbled himself. When it says that he emptied himself, Jesus didn't, this has been debated for centuries. Jesus did not empty himself of his divine identity. Jesus didn't stop being God when he came to earth as a man. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He emptied himself of the right to use his divine privileges for his own advantage. Jesus, though truly God, lived in every way truly human. Subject to human weakness, subject to hunger and weakness and exhaustion and death. Jesus subjected himself to life in every way as a human being, having to be completely dependent on the Holy Spirit. This is why when Jesus goes about healing and and doing miracles and casting out demons, Jesus himself says, it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons. He doesn't say, 
I cast out demons because I am the Lord God. He says, I am completely dependent on the spirit of God, the the Holy Spirit to do this. Jesus, even in all of the wonders that he did, was living truly human. If Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count his status as something to be used for his own advantage, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being found in human form, humbled himself. Then the entire kingdom of this world has been flipped on its head. That our king would die for us, that our king would serve us, that the creator would come down and lay his life down for the creation. Jesus came serving. The evening of the Lord's Supper, the the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested and would eventually be condemned and and crucified, the the evening uh, where they they met together in the upper room, just him and his disciples. It says in the Gospel of John that he, he, uh, he took off his robe, he wrapped a towel around his waist, which was the garment of a slave in that culture, and he stoops down at his disciples' feet. And he washes his disciples' feet. And Peter objects. Peter's like, no, no, no. Uh-uh. <laughs> no, Jesus, this is all wrong. Washing, it, washing someone's feet was the, was the lowest job of the lowest servant in the household. And Peter's like, uh-uh, Jesus. You're not going to do this. And Jesus tells him, he says, he says, you don't know what I'm doing for you now, but you will. He says, you call me Lord and master, and rightfully so, for this is who I am. And if I, your Lord, wash your feet, then how much more shall you serve one another? When Jesus turns the kingdom on its head, when Jesus turns hierarchy in this world on its head, he says, if I will do this for you, then how much more so, church, can you do this for one another? See, regardless of what Super Bowl commercials teach you, Feet washing doesn't mean eternal acceptance. It means service. And yes, Jesus washed Peter's feet and Peter would deny him. And Jesus washed Judas's feet and Judas would betray him. Jesus is not washing their feet saying, we're all good. He's saying, either way, I am among you as one who serves. I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is what has been called in in history, the great condescension, the great coming down that Jesus Christ, full of glory, came humbly and pursued us through self-sacrificial service. And until we believe this, the world will never be a safe place to pursue humility. Until we truly trust this and grasp this for ourselves, we will never be able to find ourselves walking in humility. Because here's the thing, humility is not something that you pursue. Humility is, is not something that you need to grow in. Humility is something that you receive. That when you receive the humble Savior Jesus, All 
of the the power and self-restraint and love for other people that Christ had to condescend to us in our sin lives in you. The very power of Jesus that enabled him to live in this way lives in you who believe. And when we truly grasp that, that God cares for us, that Christ regards us with the significance of his blood, everything changes. Then and only then will you be truly safe to walk in humility. And the fruit of that life, the fruit of humility is a life that looks like Jesus because it comes from the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ. And so listen to how this plays out in our lives. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. So the result of humility is a unity and love expressed in service that the world cannot comprehend. It says that as we live in this way, We will be like lights in a crooked and twisted generation. Lights that are illuminated, not because of something in and of ourselves, but because we are just windows of the glory of God shining through us as we live the way that Christ lived. So many people in the church today are tempted to make their faith about what we know about God. And so we come to church and we're like, got to learn something. I want to learn something new. I want to learn uh, some new knowledge, some new piece of information, something that's interesting, something that's exciting about the Bible or about Jesus or about whatever. And so we make our faith about knowledge. And so when that is the case, our conversations with non-believers in the world, it becomes a battle of wits. It becomes this this uh, this jousting of of moral philosophies and and all of these different uh, uh, ways to to know what is true and and whether or not God exists it becomes this intellectual battle, but it's not our knowledge that says that the scriptures say will make us shine as lights in the world. It's our humble service. Our love of one another, our self-sacrificial service without complaining. Doing it joyfully. Paul says this causes the church to shine like stars in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if when Christ returns, all we have are truths about him when all the while he was inviting us to look like him, to reflect him to the world. There will be many reasons to resist humbly serving one another and serving in the church. We will always be tempted to see our resources as limited, our time as limited, our ability 
as limited, but if you belong to Jesus, then you have been inhabited by his unlimited Holy Spirit who wants to do the work in you and through you so that you can experience the power of Christ in your life, not just in your salvation from hell, but in your salvation from the power of sin in your life. This is what Paul means when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation for Paul was not a past tense, one-time decision. It included future glorification when Christ returns, and it includes the present opportunity we have right now to be delivered from the power of sin in our lives, to be delivered from the power of selfishness in our lives, and to walk in freedom and joy and holiness and humility. He says, because you have received this salvation, now live it out. Because it is God who works in you both to desire it and to do it. And the reason oftentimes our faith becomes stagnant and the ministry of some becomes stagnant is not because we need more knowledge about God. It's because we need to actually live in light of what we know and to work it out and to put it on display not just spouting what we know about Jesus, but showing that by the power of the spirit, we can embody Christ and put him on display. Now I'll close with this. Remember that Paul says all of this to combat combat division in the church. When we see others as being sources for our own personal gain, when we come to to church only to be fed and without also participating in serving others, it causes strife and division. When we come to get from the church without contributing to the church, we're consumers and we're not participants in what's happening. Because consumers are not only consumers. Consumers are often critics. This is what's happening in Philippi. Criticizing one another. Critiquing what's happening there. And oftentimes when people begin to critique without serving to meet the needs or to fill up what is lacking in the church, it's easier to just complain and peace out and just ghost and blame the church. Ah, I didn't really like it. Well, did you do anything to like help it? Nah, it wasn't really a place for me. Is there a place for you? Is, is, the, is there a place for you that you would feel welcome submitting to the call to invest and serve and contribute? Is, is, does, does that exist? Look, if it exists, go there. Okay? You don't have to worship Jesus at Reality Carpinteria. But you got to worship Jesus and serving Christ is going to look like serving one another in humility, in love, in self-sacrifice, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's on a Sunday morning, even when you got other things to do, even when it's caring for kids, even when it's, you know, showing up at 645 in the morning to help set up the church so that others can worship. Even if it's just saying hi to someone instead of sneaking in and sneaking out. Whatever it is, following Jesus 
in the community of Christ is going to look like humble, faithful service. And when we consider others more significant than ourselves and seek to serve others and not just ourselves, then not only do we put Christ on display, but it's on display because we oftentimes are experiencing the heart of Christ for the first time when we actually start putting our feet in his footsteps and living like him. If you want to know who Jesus is, yes, there is his word. If you want to know who Jesus is, yes, we have prayer. But if you want to know who Jesus is, then serve. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. God, you have created an opportunity for us to respond in humility because you have paved the way. You have given yourself for us that we might give ourselves to you and to the body of Christ. God, I pray that we would humble ourselves before you as Savior. We would humble ourselves between one another as those you regarded as being worthy of your blood, made worthy by your blood. God, would you make us a humble people? And would we use this time that we have now to respond to you in worship for what you have done? And Lord, honest curiosity about how you would like us to follow you in humility. What is that supposed to look like for us as individuals and as a church? Holy Spirit, come and fill us with worship and praise that our voices would enter into Uh, what is taking place in the heavens right now as countless angels sing of your glory. Lord, I pray that you would fill this place with your presence and lead us in our response. In Jesus' name, amen.